The time is now, the sheets from hell today. Battle at St. Mary's Peter, British in Fort Victory over Georgia. Johnny Cash performs live prison concert at Folsom, inmates thrilled. And survivor of Apocalypse, Dr. William Bryden evades capture, thrives on puffin nectar. Plus, coming up, the only person in the UK who didn't see the royal wedding. His name is Jason. Those are the headlines. Got any questions? News Bang, the daily scoop of truth with an exclusive dash of satire. 1815. In 1815, during the War of 1812, British troops captured Fort Peter in St. Mary's, Georgia. The battle was part of the War of 1812, a conflict so insignificant it's only remembered for being fought after it had ended. The war was between America and Britain, with Spain tagging along for siestas. Peace was agreed upon in the Treaty of Ghent in December 1814, but didn't end until February 1815 when everyone woke up from their naps. The attack on Fort Peter allowed the British to blockade American transportation on the Intracoastal Waterway, which is not as sexy as it sounds. St. Mary's, located near Florida, is known for its white beaches and even whiter lies about why they joined the war in the first place. One eyewitness, Jim Bob McFeeblefist, said, We were just minding our own business stealing land from Native Americans when these Brits showed up drunk on tea and crumpets. The capture of Fort Peter was a strategic move by the British to secure their hold on boredom rights in the region. The battle lasted three days or until both sides realised they couldn't remember why they were fighting and went home for crumpets and grits. 1968. On this day in 1968, the man in black became the man behind bars as Johnny Cash recorded his infamous album at Folsom Prison. Cash, who'd always had a soft spot for jailhouses, had previously crooned about Folsom Prison Blues in 1955. Now he was back, this time with June Carter, Carl Perkins and the Tennessee Three to serenade some of California's most hardened criminals. The two shows were a roaring success, with classics like I Walk the Line, Orange is the New Black and Ring of Firearms. The inmates lapped it up, some even putting down their shivs long enough to tap their toes. One prisoner, Butch Shank McMurder, said, It was a night I'll never forget until they put me back on solitary. The album went on to sell millions of copies and paved the way for other artists to perform at prisons. Elvis Presley famously sang Jailhouse Rock at Alcatraz, while Ozzy Osbourne bit the head off a guard during his set at San Quentin. But it was Cash who started it all, proving that sometimes you have to be behind bars to truly appreciate freedom, or something profound like that. 1842. On this day in 1842, the First Anglo-Afghan War was raging. The British Empire, bored of cricket and cucumber sandwiches, decided to teach the Afghans a lesson they'd never forget. Unfortunately, it was them who got a lesson in humiliation. As the British and their Indian allies retreated from Kabul, they found themselves surrounded by tribesmen with pointy hats and even pointier swords. In the ensuing carnage, only one man survived, William Bryden, an assistant surgeon in the British Army. He later recounted his harrowing tale to a packed press conference at Jalabad's five-star hotel. It was like Benidorm on acid, he recalled, with more goats. 
Bryden managed to evade capture by disguising himself as a camel and speaking fluent Camelese. The massacre sent shockwaves through Victorian Britain. Stiff upper lips trembled and moustaches drooped. A reporter asked if he had any regrets about leaving his comrades behind. Well, said Bryden, I did consider going back for my trousers, but thought better of it. News bang, a sledgehammer to the head of the status quo. Shakanaka Giles is here to deliver the weather forecast. Expect freezing temperatures, crisp frost, and snow across the UK. Tomorrow, the British Isles will be wrapped in a blanket of frost, as if Jack Frost himself has been out with his paintbrush, giving us all a good dabbing. In the Highlands, expect snowflakes as big as haggis balls to tumble from the sky, creating a winter wonderland that would make even a kilted Scotsman reach for his thermals. Down south in London town, it'll be a nippy day with the Thames looking as reflective as a silver tray at high tea. Perfect for those braving the outdoor markets, just mind your mulled wine doesn't turn to ice. And for those in the valleys of Wales, wrap up snug as a bug in a rug, the winds going to howl like a choir of off-key dragons. But fear not, the daffodils are sleeping soundly beneath their earthen duvet, dreaming of spring. In summary, frosty brushes, haggis-sized snowflakes and dragon choirs. Stay warm out there, and that's all the weather. Eighteen forty-seven. The year is 1847 and the Treaty of Cahuenga, a ceasefire agreement between Californios and Americans, has just been signed. The Mexican-American War, an American invasion of Mexico from 1846 to 1848, has reached a temporary pause. This historic event marks a significant turning point in the conflict that would ultimately lead to California becoming part of the United States. Now joining me on the line is our reporter Brian Bastable, who's standing next to the very place where history was made in Cahuenga. As I sit here amidst the ashes of history, puffing on a scented herringbone like it's the last day on earth, I'm struck by the irony of it all. You see, ladies and gentlemen, we are in a war that dates back to 1847, the year when this very land was plunged into chaos and strife by the Treaty of Cahuenga. A ceasefire, if you will, between two mighty forces, Californios and Americans. But what did they really achieve? Two men with fancy names, John C. Fremont and Andres Pico, scribbling away at a bit of paper in some dusty old barn while around them bullets flew like furious bees from hell itself. And now, 177 years later, we find ourselves once again locked in battle over this land we call California. A land so beautiful that it makes even the most cynical war reporter swoon with desire. But let's not get too carried away now, there's work to be done. For today is January 13th, 2024, or as some might say, 2024, but where's the fun in that? 
We have come here today because tonight marks an important milestone for these brave soldiers who continue to fight against all odds for their freedom from tyranny and oppression. Yes indeed folks, this is our big moment. The culmination of years of planning, plotting and praying for victory against overwhelming forces bent on crushing us beneath their heel like bugs underfoot. But fear not, dear listeners, for today we shall stand tall against our enemies no matter how many times they try to bring us down. Today is our day. So hold on to your hats, my friends, because you are about to witness history being made right before your very eyes. Brian Bastable reporting live from downtown Kumar, the city formerly known as Los Angeles, here on Newsbang. 1963. The clock strikes 1963 and the African continent witnesses a tumultuous chapter in its history. Togo's first president, Silvanus Olympio, falls victim to a coup led by military officers Emmanuel Bordiole, Etienne Eyadema, and Kleber Dadjo. The ensuing power struggle results in the formation of a new government and the return of Olympio's political opponents from exile. And as we turn our gaze towards this African nation in turmoil, we find Ken Shit on the line to provide us with an update on the situation. Ken? 1963, the year when Togo's first president, Silvanus Olympio, got his ass kicked by a bunch of military assholes. Emmanuel Bodjole, Etienne Yadama, and Kleber Dadjo were the masterminds behind this bullshit coup that left the country reeling like a tramp on a roller coaster. These bastards quickly formed a new government and brought in exiled political opponents of Olympio to join their little shit show. It was like watching a pack of hyenas tear apart a wounded gazelle. Brutal, savage, and fucking disgusting. Togo was left with a gaping wound that would take years to heal. The people were left wondering if they'd ever see stability again. And all because some power-hungry pricks couldn't handle not being in charge. This is Ken Shit reminding you that history is full of assholes who will stop at nothing to get what they want. So keep your eyes peeled and your middle fingers ready. 1972 in a momentous turn of events, the year 1972 saw Ghanaian military officer Ignatius Kutu Acheampong seize power in a coup, overthrowing Prime Minister Kofi Abrefa Busia and President Edward Akufo Addo. Acheampong's reign as the military head of state lasted until 1978, when he was ousted and executed. Busia, on the other hand, was instrumental in restoring civilian government in Ghana, while Akufo Addo is fondly remembered as a founding father of the nation, having served as Chief Justice and Ceremonial President. Now to discuss this historic event with me on the other end of this telebalance unit is our reporter Hardiman Pesto. It's 1972, Martin. Ghana is in turmoil as Ignatius Kutu Achampong stages a coup d'etat against Prime Minister Kofi Abrefa Busia and President Edward Akufo-Addo. Yes, Pesto? This is a significant event in Ghanaian history. What can you tell us about the situation on the ground? Well, Marta and I spoke with a local man named Kwame, who was very upset about the situation. He said that life under Busia and Akufo Addo had been difficult, but he didn't think a military takeover was the answer. And what about Achiampong? What do we know about him? Not much yet, Martin. He's a relatively unknown figure in Ghanaian politics, but it seems he has the support 
of some key military personnel. So this could be the beginning of a new era for Ghana? Possibly, Martin. Only time will tell if a champong can bring stability to the country or if his rule will lead to further unrest. Back to you in the studio. News bang, biting the hand that feeds the lie. Polly Beep is our travel correspondent. Today, she brings us updates on various road and traffic situations around the United Kingdom and beyond. Well, if you're heading to the Costa Concordia for a leisurely cruise, you might want to reconsider your plans. The Italian cruise ship has just run aground and capsized off Isola del Giglio in Tuscany. It seems the ship deviated from its planned route and struck a rock formation, causing it to partially sink. Our thoughts are with the 33 people who lost their lives in this tragic incident. Elsewhere in Tuscany, be prepared for some traffic disruptions as emergency services rush to aid those affected by the capsizing. If you're planning on driving through the region, be aware that roads leading to and from Isola del Giglio may be congested. In other news, there's a curious sighting on the A40 near Oxford. A flock of sheep has taken over the road. Drivers are advised to approach with caution and allow the woolly rascals plenty of time to cross. Up north in Scotland, the A9 is experiencing some delays due to a particularly stubborn highland cow refusing to budge from the middle of the road. Officers are currently attempting to coax it into moving using traditional Scottish treats such as haggis and shortbread. Finally, down in Devon, a group of mischievous Morris dancers has decided to perform an impromptu routine on the B348 near Exeter. While their antics are certainly entertaining, drivers are reminded to keep their eyes on the road and not be too distracted by the jangling bells and flamboyant costumes. Stay safe out there and remember, when life gives you traffic jams, make helato. News bang. Spinning the news with a whirlwind of truth. Today, in the annals of corporate history, a seismic shift occurred as Steve Ballmer replaced Bill Gates as the CEO of Microsoft. The former basketball player and billionaire businessman, who also owns the Los Angeles Clippers and co-founded the philanthropic Ballmer Group, took over from Gates in 2000. Gates, known for his work with Microsoft and his status as one of the wealthiest people globally, had held various positions at the company before stepping down as CEO in 2014. Under his leadership, Microsoft became a titan in the tech industry, renowned for its Windows operating systems, Microsoft Office Suite, and Xbox consoles. Now to our reporter Perkins Stornoway for more on this momentous corporate transition. The stock market is wild today. Dogger, slight, occasionally poor. Bill Gates, the big tech titan, passed the CEO torch to Steve Ballmer in the year 2000. Ballmer, becoming richer, is the billionaire businessman and investor who served as CEO from 2000 to 2014. Microsoft, today, lost £1.2 billion against Google Chrome. Lundy, good, becoming poor. Steve Ballmer, now owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, chuckled in the pockets of the company. Viking, slight, or moderate? The tech giant, Microsoft, has expanded to space with its new satellite, 
365, on its maiden voyage, sadly only expected to reach low orbit before falling back to Earth. Hebrides occasionally rough. Microsoft's next project, Xbox Excel, expected to be released in the year 2030, boasts a 100-terabyte hard drive. Thames Fair, occasionally moderate. The tech company's valuation plunged by £2.4, however, due to the overwhelming success of their new Windows WannaCry software, Shannon becoming variable 3 or 4. Bill Gates, now a philanthropist, was spotted wearing a fake monocle, taking pictures of puppies for his charity. Rockall, occasionally poor. The Microsoft 365 suite, Windows WannaCry, spread to Europe and the US, infecting millions of computers. Fair Isle, fair. And in sad news, the billionaire Steve Ballmer was recently spotted using a typewriter stating, I don't trust computers anymore. Trafalgar, West, becoming Southwest, five or six, business. News bang, a spotlight on truth, not the lies. Portis Sedum, Sedum, fourteen thirty-five. The year is fourteen thirty-five, and in a historic move, Pope Eugene the Fourth has issued a papal bull called Sicut Dudum. This momentous document prohibits the enslavement of the native Guanches of the Canary Islands by the Spanish. The bull serves to reinforce a previous decree condemning Portuguese slave raids in these islands. The Guanches were the indigenous inhabitants of these islands, which are now an autonomous community within Spain, boasting a population of 2.2 million people. This declaration marks a significant turning point in the treatment of indigenous populations during this era. And joining us now on the line to discuss this unprecedented move by Pope Eugene is our religious correspondent, Pastor Kevin Monstrance. Thank you, thank you, you're too kind. Now I must say, this studio audience is looking rather more lively than my last parish council meeting. I call them to order and half of them nod off into their tea and biscuits. Not the most animated bunch, I'll tell you. <laughs> Why, just last week old Mrs Pillicock brought her knitting and proceeded to work on what appeared to be a full-sized woolen poncho throughout my entire sermon. I had to cut a bit short when her needles started clicking to the rhythm of Knees up Mother Brown. That woman would knit through the second coming, I swear. <laughs> but this is meant to be a history lesson, not my memoirs. So let me regale you with a tale from 15th century Spain. The year was 1435 and our man Pope Eugene IV took it upon himself to condemn the enslavement of the Guanche peoples of the Canary Islands. Now these Guanches were the local inhabitants, living a simple life herding goats and worshipping their gods El Gran Guanche and Brian Blessed. Then along come the Spanish conquistadors, looking to press-gang them into servitude. Understandably, the Guanches weren't too keen on this idea. So, Pope Eugene issues a, a papal bull called Zicut Dudum, which essentially told the Spanish to leave off enslaving the Guanches and find some other ethnic group to oppress. A bold move by Eugene, and one that was largely ignored by the Spanish, who continued merrily enslaving away for years to come. <laughs> this reminds me of a Spanish priest I once knew called Father Fernando, who had a similar stubborn streak. 
One Sunday, he decided the church organ was playing too slowly, so he glued lead weights to the organist's shoes to speed him up. Didn't work, unfortunately. The organist just ripped his shoes off mid-hymn and stormed out in his socks. <laughs> After that, Fernando got it into his head that the church mice were too fat and lazy. He tried putting them on a strict diet of communion wafers and light exercise on the rosary beads, but they just chewed through his plans and continued feasting on crumbs from the bake sales. <laughs> Fernando did finally get his way with the choir, though. Deciding their singing was too monotonous, he snuck a strong Spanish laxative into their pre-service tea. Let's just say the choir loft that Sunday reverberated with an angelic chorus of a different sort. The Sunday service was never livelier, though. Fernando was politely asked to move parishes after that. Well, I'm being given the wind-up signal now. Thank you again, and God bless, and mind the plaster dust in the cupcakes. And it's time for a swift tour of tomorrow's headlines. The Times lead with Winston Churchill, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Charles de Gaulle, and Henri Giraud plan allies European strategy in Casablanca. There's a picture there of a map of Europe, but upside down. The independent stick with Josip Broz Tito, sworn in as president of Yugoslavia. There's a picture there of a flag with only one hook on it. Elvis Presley dominates the headlines today. The Daily Mail lead with Hound Dog Boogies Down from Hawaii. There's an advertisement there for Gravy Browning. Finally, the Mirror give it to us straight with Champion of Sewage Faces Reality Television Dilemma. And that is all we have time for today. Do tune in tomorrow night when the news team will try to live up to your already high expectations of them. Good night and sweet dreams. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>